guys, welcome to Chef Grace's Place. Today, I'm really excited to have Jesse from the Rodell Institute in Pennsylvania. They, as you guys know, I'm very into where my food comes from as a chef, and I was really excited to find these guys. Surpri I'm surprised I haven't heard of you guys before because I actually went to the restaurant school at Walnut Hill College in Philadelphia, so I'm not sure why I didn't hear about you guys before, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad to catch you up on what we do here. Yep. So, uh, yeah, you'll probably do a better job of explaining it than me, so I'll let you take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, Grace, thank you for having me to represent Rodale Institute today. Um, so we are a nonprofit organic research farm. Um, we were incorporated in 1941 in Emmaus, Pennsylvania by our founder, Rodale. Um, and he was a, actually a manufacturer from the New York City area who started experiencing some health problems as he got um, a little older. And he just um, started researching, uh, you know, some really cool European uh, predecessors to, um, you know, organic agriculture like Lady Eve, Balf Lady Eve Balfour and Rudolf Steiner um, about how we were basically adopted after World War II, uh, a chemical way of producing food. So after World War II, you know, they we were making munitions for bombs and we were making um you know certain nerve agents for like gases and things like that and that was all repurposed into what we now know as chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides and herbicides so that was like what i think is most surprising about organic is that you know 1945 wasn't that long ago the end of world war ii and that's where you really saw this ramping up of using chemicals in agriculture um, because a lot of people are not from, a lot of people listening to my podcast are probably very into like learning how to cook, but I don't know if they are, how much they know about where their food comes from. Um, so just a little quick overview, um, the conventional methods of farming are using these chemicals. Mm -hmm. And in the organic method, the conventional method of farming, they're like, we're going to dump a bunch of shit on here and it's going to grow big and we'll have more food security. But they weren't really thinking about soil as a, you just think of it as dirt. I'm sure a lot of people have that in their head, like, oh, it's dirt. But dirt is actually made up of a lot of different things. And <laughs> those things are... Uh, living uh, microorganisms and they play a role in making our food and making the earth healthy. So if we destroy the soil, then we're going to destroy the food. <laughs> right. Yeah, you that's definitely basically. got that right, Grace. Um, yeah, basically what's happening is, is that um, I like to think of it as like dirt is a nuisance. Like dirt is something that gets on the bottom of your pant leg or you track into your house and you want to clean up. Soil is alive. So in one teaspoon of soil, there's literally billions of microbiolo microbiological organisms. And the more chemicals you put into the soil, you're hurting that population. 
And just like you learn in school with like a food, like the food web, you know, there's a food web to the soil, starting with um, the mycorrhizal fungi of the, the plants, help them take up nutrients. And they really feed off of like the carbon that the plants take in from CO2 from respiration and deposit into the soil. So the, the soil can actually act as a carbon sink and help reverse uh, you know, our climate change effects by dumping all that excess carbon in the atmosphere back into the soil where, it, where um, these microorganisms can use it. And then of course, you know, a little bigger organism eats another one, you know, maybe an insect eats some, you know, the next biggest thing and up into like the mammals and birds, like on, you know, above the soil. Now, since it, I mean, I feel like it hasn't really been in the public eye of how dire really the, the situation is with the topsoil. Um, why do you think that is? And also, how come these, is it really that much more expensive to produce food organically that these major corporations aren't switching over to that? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that um, as far as the soil goes, there I've seen some estimates that we only have 60 years of topsoil left. So I think to your point that um, people imagine soil being ubiquitous like the cosmos or you know that oh there's tons of it but you know that's not really true like i've seen many studies some of them vary but around 60 if we keep farming conventionally we have about 60 years of topsoil left when it's gone it's gone because it can take hundreds of years to build one inch of soil so um, through organic methods like cover cropping, that's where you use other plants to get nitrogen into the soil and also add carbon matter and organic, I'm sorry, organic matter to the soil, you can actually help speed up that process and replenish your farm's soil, um, you know, amount because you are, you know, using it to produce food. So that's like really interesting. And um, I think as far as the pricing goes, uh, my, I had a colleague here previously at Rodale Institute is that there's a hidden cost of food that we don't realize. Um, basically big corp conventional ag is subsidized. So that's how they get their, their, their prices so low. And their, um, I think that has a little to do with like the uh, amount of investment they did in the infrastructure of the supply chain nationally too. But you know, that's not the true cost of food. When you uh, buy an organic eggplant, let's say that's maybe a little more expensive than a conventional eggplant in the, the grocery store, you're really looking at that comparison of that's actually the cost of how to that what we need to produce food at the organic price point. So um, I, the solutions are really complicated, but I've been to USDA meetings in Washington, DC for some of the, the food access grants I manage. And uh, that was a very hot topic for the organic vegetable growers about how, you know, they deserve subsidies and they deserve, you know, the same that conventional gets. Absolutely. Yeah, I was reading, I was, well, I interviewed a, a woman from the Florida Food Policy uh, Project. Mm -hmm. 
So I was, I was watching a lot of their videos and stuff and they had a, a guy on from the Department of Agriculture and he said it was corn, wheat, and I think soy were the three major subsidized crops, but like, you know, tomatoes weren't subsidized or kale or, you know, things that people really eat where like a lot of these vegetables are going to animal feed and fuel. Yeah. Yeah, that is a, that's a very valid point, Grace. Um, yeah, and one thing I've learned from my food access programs too is um, through these programs, I have like a double snap program at our mobile markets, um, the WIC check program, the farmer's market nutrition coupon checks. Um, if you incentivize, you know, vegetable eating, people will do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, this year SNAP has saved my life because I lost both my jobs from the pandemic. But I noticed that the people that were also receiving the benefits, number one, they don't, these are people that have just lost their jobs and they, you know, they didn't even they didn't go to farmers market. They didn't have time to go to the farmers market beforehand, so they didn't even know that they could use their SNAP benefits at a farmers market. But also, most people who are working all the time don't know how to cook, mm -hmm. so they've been getting, you know, prepared foods. So they don't know. How, like I got a like a whole uh, crate of zucchini or yellow squash because. Mm -hmm. They were going to throw it out because no one was buying it because nobody knew how to cook it. Yeah. So I made soup, I made roasted squash, I made yeah. all these things. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, in my community, a lot of people, just in my apartment complex alone, a lot of people have been laid off. So I was just like, hey, you want some soup? Because it was like, it was like 30 pounds of squash. <laughs> Don't oh, waste. <laughs> that was really so, awesome way to repurpose it. Um, yeah, that and a lot for my food access programs, I uh, basically manage primarily what I do for Rodale Institute to back up a little bit is I manage these uh, food access programs. So we have this RIFT program and a, which is Rodale Institute farmer training and we also have a veteran farmer training program. Um, and these candidates can apply for a paid internship here. They come for maybe part of the season or actually the entire season has been getting more popular and they um, learn from, you know, March until the end of the season, every, you know, the seasonality of the crops, when you plant them, you know, when you start the seeds in the greenhouse, when you transplant them. And then um, I take over at the heart, like kind of at the point of harvest, because much like you, I actually have, I was a high volume corporate kitchen manager. <laughs> and also a, a front of the house manager for a uh, a farm to table restaurant in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So I, I do have a good perspective of both the kitchen and the front of the house side. Um, but yeah, so uh, my food access programming does have a cooking demonstration component. And I've worked with the food trust who you might be aware of because they're from Philadelphia. They're a nonprofit food and nutrition, uh, cooking and nutrition education. Um, they came out of the Reading Terminal Market, I think was their their, you know, birth into their nonprofit status. And um, they've been helping me in Reading. And then we have this uh, another uh, nonprofit called Cooking Matters that's uh, based out of our Feeding America Food Bank, Second Harvest Food Bank. I think here. I've heard of that one. I think maybe is 
Frank Oliveri involved in that one? Maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, Feeding America is definitely a national, like nonprofit chain. Um, well, I mean, the cooking matters. I feel like he was telling me, I interviewed him on a podcast. And I think he was telling me something about. Um, That's great. Something like that. Yeah, he's definitely. Um, the, yeah, the, the cooking matters is national too. Yeah. Oh, is that? Um, I've just been working with our chapters basically, and uh, and but we do do like uh, they do help me with the cooking demonstration part. Uh, you know, maybe coming up with the recipes. I'll tell them what vegetables are available week to week. I send it to the chefs or chef volunteers. They come up with a vegetable. We usually try to keep it kind of simple because, you know, we're cooking at a farmer's market. So we have limited infrastructure. And then, of course, we, um, the Food Trust provides a bilingual and, and Cooking Matters provides a bilingual recipes too for that. Oh, that's cool. Population. English and Spanish? Yep. Wow. Yeah. And um, so you sell all the the fruits and vegetables you produce at farmers markets throughout Pennsylvania? Yeah, so basically what it is, is it's a it's a mobile farmers market. Um, because we're a nonprofit, you know, we, we don't want to go to like a traditional farmers market. So um, what the mobile market allows us is it's uh, mobility that I can like go to these low income neighborhoods and set up. So sometimes it's kind of like a food truck model. So sometimes like we're always at the YMCA on Saturdays, so you can always find us there in Allentown. And we're always at the Penn Street Market in Reading um, every Thursday. But then I will coordinate with various community organizations like um, WIC offices and uh, maybe um, senior subsidized housing like complexes to do these like pop up markets so we can actually just bring the food to them which is really great because, you know, as living in a city, you can have some transportation barriers to accessing food. Yeah. And well, I was really lucky to live uh, right on Clark Park in West Philly. Okay. And uh, the, the Amish people would come in on Sundays. Oh, that's great. And they, were, they had the farmer's market there. Um, but there was one stand that was like an urban, urban farming, uh, it was like a group of kids. Mm -hmm. um selling their stuff and i mean it was funny because like they were uh i don't know what like how they were growing it but like compared to like the amish people it was like oh this must be like a student thing <laughs> there's some challenges to urban agriculture um mainly space right because yeah. you got to find like these lots that the city will donate or that you can rent maybe from somebody who actually owns the lot, like a, a private citizen or something. But um, th th those urban agricultural, agricultural enterprises are really important because um, there's a difference between food access and food sovereignty. And both have their place in, you know, mitigating like uh, food insecurity in your communities. But What's the difference? this is something where it's like my program where I'm, yeah bringing food to a community that needs it but the food sovereignty models are very powerful because you can have that, those communities that are low access maybe low income actually control the means of production so you know they can choose what foods are culturally appropriate for their community um you know there's basically no middlemen so you can do the markets whenever you want or you know whenever you know that's like you could just tailor it to your community more effectively, I think. 
but both both are really impactful. Both have their place, but um, the food sovereignty models are, are are quite important. I think so that that these communities like Philadelphia, you know, inner city New Jersey cities, all over the country. You know, I don't mean to be East Coast centric, but they you know they they control the means of the production. Then, oh yeah, I mean, I started a garden on my patio in. Um like four storage containers, basically. Yeah, that's what I do. I live in a city too. I know I work out here in a Pennsylvania rural farm, but I live in a city, so I do the same thing. Yep. I got giant, I got sunflowers growing up to the, the balcony above me. I'm sure I'm gonna get in trouble for it, but I'm gonna keep doing it until they say something. But it's amazing because the kids really, uh, they're like, you know, bewildered by this stuff growing because they they've never seen it before so i like it because then you know they come over with their parents mm -hmm. um when they're walking by and you know i get to show them hey this is what how tomatoes grow this is how and they're like i hate vegetables i'm like god try it and then they try it they're like this yeah. is good <laughs> yeah um i i have a little funny anecdote about like uh, kids not liking vegetables um you know kids can sometimes have a natural tendency to kind of do the opposite of what their parents say. So it was, it was really common at some, I did a pop-up market at an elementary school here in Allentown. And um, actually the, it was the most food insecure community, part of Allentown, the South side, um, which is, and us and me and the food trust were going there to do these uh, pop-up markets over the summer. Um, I know you're just gonna say, oh, it's summer, school's out, but it was a, a one of the, um, community lunch program schools. So it actually had some traffic in the summertime because the cafeteria was open, you know, to, to feed the community. But um, uh, this uh, mom and her child were, you know, buying, uh, you know, produce from me and her, I was like, oh, do you want some kale? Do you want some lettuce? And she was like, oh, my daughter doesn't like vegetables. And right away, the daughter was like, I do too, mom. So like, it's, I think my, my point of the anecdote is that if you, I think it's that, um, you know, that experience of once kids like grow food and, you know, grow a plant and see the work that went into planting it and harvesting and watering it, taking care of it, weeding it, that, you know, you're more likely to like want to, you know, harvest it and get the, you know, the, the, the fun part of it because you, you had that experience. Yeah, whenever the kids are like, well, because I'm growing out like cherry tomatoes because it's, it's Florida, so it's pretty hard to grow big tomatoes on a patio you know it's too yeah, much water yeah. um so i'll tell them oh this is tomatoes aren't vegetables tomatoes are fruits and then they're like they get all confused <laughs> you just touched on the major controversy in the food world right <laughs> but you know that's all part of the education we do at, um when we have school events and stuff is um uh my colleague here at Rodale actually did like or building organic gardens at uh, subsidized Head Start programs. And one of the games we played was, is it a stem, a leaf, a root, or a fruit? So then, you know, we'd be like tomato. And then they had these like sticky placards that they could be like, it's a, you know, it's a fruit. And then, or like, you know, and then you could just mix and match or like carrots are roots. And just that whole idea, like you, what you were talking about, about like what food is you know, in what part of the plant it is even, and um, is, uh, you know, really important, especially at that age. Do, um, so you, 
mentioned you have like uh, courses at the institute. Mm -hmm. Are they all like you apply or can you purchase a course or how is how does that work? Yeah, I encourage anyone who's curious to go to www.rodaleinstitute.org and just go on our events calendar. Um, sometimes we, um, you know, with the pandemic, we had to, to kind of shift too. So we've actually really increased our virtual like webinars and, and classes and things like that. That's cool. Um, so some of them are free. Some of them you have to pay, if you have to register and pay a fee online but they're all in our events calendar. So whatever topic you're interested in, we have, we've done uh, organic gardening this year so far, uh, compost product, backyard compost production. Um, what's another one? Uh, Dan, my, uh, my boss, the farm manager, did a tomato grafting class. So he showed you how to like graft um, a fruiting tomato on a wild stock root that's really hardy. So it's more disease resistant. So that, that's a pretty, so there's all kinds of skills that you can learn from that. Um, and our biggest event coming up in July is the annual field day, which does have a virtual component if nobody can travel here to Kutztown, Pennsylvania. And then you can actually um, see every, um, you know, research model and, um, you know, example that we do here on the farm through that, through that um, field day event. Now, we touched on the conventional farming, um, but we didn't really explain why. How how do these organic farming methods differ in the from the conventional ones? <laughs> sure. So um, most principally, we uh, use you 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 want to use biological solutions to growing food, not chemical. Is like the probably the easiest way to explain it to somebody just learning about it. Um, so one of the major things that uh, organic farms utilize that might be utilized on conventional farms, but not to the extent that we do, is um, composting. So any kind of uh, plant waste and even, you know, animal waste, if you're raising animals, can be composted. And then that compost, you're basically making a soil amendment, what we call that, because you're going to add it to your fields or your pots if you're, you know, a home gardener, um, to um, increase the nutrients in your soil through that through that managed decomposition of um, organic material. And then, secondly, I think the another big difference, and this is actually getting more popular in conventional farms. Uh, is the concept of cover cropping. So if you use things like hairy vetch and other legumes, you can, um, they, they are nitrogen fixers, like things like beans and things actually can put nitrogen into the soil. So we'll use those to kind of like beef up our nitrogen levels in our soil. And then um, our CEO, uh, Jeff Moyer, invented this roller crimper which was um, a way that you can grow a cover crop, let's say like rye, I'll just use that as an example. So like your basic grass, you know, and then it's basically kind of like a rolling pin, a metal rolling pin with a chevron system. So these like uh, built on edges okay. on the front of the tractor. And then that'll roll down the cover crop, creating a weed suppression mat. And then on the back of the tractor is your planter. So you're simultaneously dropping seed. 
Oh, wow. I think I saw the video of that and I was like, really trying to make crop circles was going on over here. <laughs> right. So that, and, that's cool. It looks it looks like you're combing the grass down, basically. Exactly. So yeah. the chevron snap the grass, the rye, let's say, at the base. So then the roots start decomposing. And, yeah, then you and have, they break it in a way. Exactly. Yeah. And as that stuff decomposes, you know, all that organic material goes back into your soil. So like, you know, you don't have to like clean it up is my point. You know, you can just like let it go into the soil at that point. Well, also like if say they subsidize like legumes, right? Mm -hmm. And it would be a, an incentive for them to cover crop. Like if you incentivize cover crops, people still eat beans. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's a little gap there, Grace, because if you take um, the fruit from it or yeah. you, the fruit, sorry, but if you know, if you harvest the beans or whatever, like you're going to be missing some of the nitrogen fixing property properties. Okay. So, I thought it was in the, uh, they have like little nodes on the roots or something, right? Yeah, so it's a it's just a little more complicated than the difference between like I guess my point is there's a difference between like a legume production for harvest and legume production yeah. for cover cropping. Okay. But I do think to your point you would get some nitrogen fixing even if you did take the you know if you did harvest like the soybeans or whatever. But yeah, that and so I think those are the two biggest principles that we use. And then you know there's other you know we, it's not like we don't use. Like you could use an organic approved pesticide or herbicide. Um, they do exist. They're approved by this um, OMRI, which is this um, also a nonprofit that kind of they decide what, you know, is organically approved or not. The one thing that's jumping off in my head is um, horticultural vinegar. So you could, you know, it's just a vinegar. It's just like way stronger than you would use like in a salad dressing. And then you, you could actually spray weeds with that. And, but uh, the problem isn't the problem with pesticides too. It's kind of like the problem with hand sanitizer. It doesn't just kill the bad germs. It kills the bad germs and the good germs. Exactly, exactly. So, um, but there are times where if your pest pressure is that high. Then you just got to do it. You have another tool in the bank. Um, a lot of them are actually for, um, they're, uh, you know, biological based. So like, you know, plants like, chrysanthemums or something you can you can distill like some kind of like you know treatment out of them do you do you like learn or teach how to use like so so i wrote a book on uh cooking with marijuana and okay. one of the things that uh people who grow marijuana grow marijuana use to like i think it's for like outfits and stuff is mm. uh ladybugs yes so do you kind of, I guess that's, is that biological warfare? Yeah. <laughs> Introducing, totally. you know, different uh, bugs and stuff to the, totally. the best. I met, yeah, I met a lot of farms that do that, Grace. And that's what, I, I guess that's what my point about was like having other tools in the box. Like there's, there's some organic approved um, pesticides and herbicides that are like, you know, more natural based, but that what you're getting into is kind of like um, attracting beneficial insects. And um, I've met some farms, uh, there's one over here in New Jersey really close to us that actually will buy in like, you know, ladybugs and stuff and release them at certain points in the season because ladybugs will go after aphids, to your point. 
Um, but what we do here at Rodale is um, one of the things that uh, is in our vegetable systems trial, which is one of our trials where we compare conventional agricultural methods to organic. Um, and that's been going on since the 80s? That's the farming systems trial. That's grain production. The okay. vegetable systems one is, I think, 2015. Okay. One started. But uh, one of the things they have are these insectary strips in, in the field plots. So they'll have things like Thai basil, um, fennel, dill, um, trying to think of a couple other ones that are big, buckwheat, um, sweet alyssum. So you can actually plant these companion plants, what we call them, by your vegetable rows, and they'll attract these beneficial insects in, into like, you know, into your biological warfare thing that you're talking about. So like, there's two, there's many ways, different farms have different things. So I don't want to judge people's methods, you know, so you can buy in ladybugs or you can plant plants that attract ladybugs. There's like different ways to. Yeah. And I, you know, I have so much Thai basil out there right now. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, you should be getting, and then of course you, they also attract pollinators, right? Things yeah. like honeybees, um, certain flies and things are all pollinators. So, you know, the, the, the more, dive it's all about biodiversity right if you can create this biodiverse environment you're going to have a healthier environment in general so if your earthworms are if, as your if, if your soil's teeming with earthworms if you have these beneficial like attracting plants by your vegetables you know like you know and then you have like birds coming in and maybe eating some of these pests too that are like cabbage moss. I saw a bird go after a cabbage moth the other day, which was pretty cool. Um, you know, all of these things, like nature knows what it's doing. You know, you're just trying to kind of like. Trying to like create an ecosystem that yeah. will give you food, basically. <laughs> yeah, you're trying to marry those concepts, right? Like, you know, man adjusting, you know, an area, oh, I'm sorry, people adjusting an area to, to the grow food as opposed to like it and like trying to do it as close to nature as possible well also it's like you know you're trying to maintain the balance too because if there's too many earthworms it's not good either you know yeah there's yeah or you could get slugs i mean yeah, there's like yeah. All, yeah that's that's why farming is challenging grace because there's like you might find a solution that works for a little bit and then you got to pick uh quickly pivot you know and adjust because that's not working or it worked for a time, but now it's not. And to be honest, that's one of the things that makes me passionate about organic agriculture is I've gone to conventional vegetable, um, you know, conventions. And it's always like, hey, I have this thing with my potatoes. What do you do? And the speaker's like, spray it with this. Topic over. You know, and it's just like, I like the challenge, the problem solving, the like, it, it's like really exciting to me. Like, you know, us as humans are very smart. You know, we can figure this stuff out and it's, it's fun to do it, I think, too. Yeah, it's really fun. I, uh, I've been having a lot of fun trying to grow things. And I've been seeing, like, because I'm actually, I am from New Jersey. Um, so in Florida, like, I used to grow tomatoes in New Jersey because that's what mm. everyone does in their backyard in New it's Jersey. It's the best soil for it, right? Blueberry yeah. tomatoes. Yes. <laughs> and... Um, but the even like 
the growing season for tomatoes. Like I last year when I tried to grow tomatoes, I just I grew them in the summer, which is the one time you don't want to grow tomatoes in Florida. <laughs> so yeah. it's just uh it's but it's so much fun, even though I messed up, like I had a lot of fun doing it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And um you actually that's a great segue because um Rodale Institute has just opened some regional resource centers in um Georgia and in Iowa and in California. And part of the reason of that was as all of our, you know, research studies have been based out of here in Kutztown since you touched on since the early 80s. So, you know, we would get some feedback from the national farmers, even international farmers, you know, saying, hey, you know, it's way too dry here for that. Or, you know, my growing season's three months in Alaska, not six or nine or whatever. So our hope is that these regional centers will be able to expand our reach research scope and like tailor research projects to that region. Um, That's amazing. It's really humid and hot down in the South Florida, Georgia, you know, California is really dry and, you know, has a lot of viticulture going on. Um, you know, Iowa is, you know, you probably are going to be a little, they're going to want to know a lot about grain production, organic grain production, you know, because it's like the corn belt and soy belt. So um, yeah, so that's like, that's one exciting thing that has happened very recently here at Rodale. One of, speaking of international, um, I follow a lot of gardeners on like YouTube and that kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, one of them talks about, um, a lot about no-till versus mm -hmm. till. And I was wondering if you can explain what that means to the viewers. Yeah, excellent. That's a, that's a great uh, thing we should talk about actually. So tilling the soil is when, um, you know, you use, it doesn't have to be a tractor implement, but typically you, you can see like a tractor if you imagine it. And that's where you really like are um, kind of dropping like some kind of implement, like a plow into the soil and, you know, breaking it up. But as we just talked about the biodiversity in the soil, all those mycorrhizal fungi, it's like a web, it's almost like a spider web, like a network. And even like bigger things like earthworms and stuff, they're all gonna get like cut up, you know, and like disturbed. So why Jeff Moyer invented that, the roller crimper was that it is a no-till method because you know, you're rolling down that cover crop and then um, you know, planting the seed in the back of that, that weed mat that you just um, you know, rolled down. So um, yeah, so the less you till, you know, the less you're disturbing that, 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 um, that web of microbiological activity down there. And um, we're actually, we've just, um, kind of came out with this new kind of program too called regenerative organic agriculture, which will be another step in the organic agriculture certification. So you'll need to be organically organic agriculture certified as a base. And then you can go for these ROC um, kind of certifications. And are you saying you'll need to like, as in people who want to sell things that are labeled organic? Yeah, so we, basically it's going to be like another certification on top of the organic certification. That's going to be like a national requirement or? Um, it's something that, yeah, we're just, we're um, basically trying to 
minimize tillage events, even on organic farms. Okay. So you could theoretically have an organic farm that like, you know, tills. Yeah. So to get it up to like, there's going to be like a bronze, a silver, and like a gold level of ROC or regenerative organic, where we're really trying to develop models and teach organic farmers how to minimize tillage events. And I'm not an exact expert on this, so sorry, but I, I believe they're trying to at least, you have to go three years without a major quote unquote tillage event for some okay. of the levels of certification. Is there... I feel like there's dirt though that's like not like that's kind of I don't know starved or doesn't have any of the microorganisms in it would it be beneficial to kind of till that with like dirt to like inoculate it with microorganisms um there's different ways to remediate the soil if you were to um, sometimes it's plant-based, like sunflowers, to your point, like what you're growing on your patio, and mushrooms actually can take heavy metals out of soil. So places in cities where there's like brown fields, like the EPA is like way too much arsenic to grow food here. Um, that's why raised beds are so popular in the cities, because you can, you have to get off of like, you know, in, went to school out by Patterson, it was all textile mills, so you're probably talking. Jersey? yeah. So, I used to work in Patterson. Oh, really? Yeah, I went to William Patterson. That was my college. I worked for uh, Eva's Village for a while teaching. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. So the um, so those uh, so you know you you know those plants could take up arsenic or mercury things like that, um, but it's all about the no-till policy that you were just talking about. If you were to buy a farm that really had um diminished soil nutrients. I would get compost in there right away, you know, and um, also like just start cover cropping. Like I would, you know, and you'd probably want to do rotations, like hit it with legumes really hard because you really want to get nitrogen in there. And then, you know, maybe move if, if you're missing um, organic matter, not organic in the sense of this, you know, the certification, but like actual like plant material you know, you'd want to get some something that has biomass, like, um, you know, a rye or like a wheat, you know, something that grows real tall. So you could make with, some whiskey. <laughs> yeah, and you could make some whiskey, exactly. So it was uh, like methods to, you know, kind of build back up your soil. So it'd all be like, I would just suggest compost, 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 and, um, you know, cover crop, cover crop, cover crop. Um, it is common that this would be quite a capital investment because if you're trying to grow for profit, you need, you know, you want to try to get vegetables out of there fairly early, you know, but um, I've seen people purchase farms that had really poor soil and actually use the first couple seasons just preparing the soil for vegetable production. So if you had the time to wait, you know, like, I'm just going to keep doing this, keep composting, keep growing cover crops, keep doing soil tests. And once I get into that, you know, once I get good results in nutrient and and uh, organic matter percentage and all that, then you then they would go into, you know, vegetable production. So we didn't really touch on the the animals yet, mm -hmm. um, and this is something I I try to because people don't really have an education on where food comes from, and we're talking about maintaining an ecosystem. Animals are part of that ecosystem, correct, <laughs> and. Um, 
I get a lot of pushback, especially from the vegans, because, mm -hmm. but I'm like, you, you don't really understand, like, they're, they're having a great life, and they're, you know, they're fertilizing the land, they're helping the environment, and, um, you know, it's, I always say, like, your dollar is your vote, so right. if you can give your dollar, like, if you like meat, and you like eating meat, and the only reason you're being a vegan is because you think, you're saving the world the you know the um i think a better solution would be to use your dollar to help a farmer that's farming like this because even if you are vegan you're still going to be supporting these giant cor corporations that are creating these monocultures so that's my argument there but um if you could tell us a little bit about how these animals, how these animals are, I know they're rotated, but sure. how we use them. Yeah, um, and that's a, I, first of all, I just want to go off of the bat that like, you know, if, if you're doing veganism for a morality reason, I don't want to dissuade people from that. I know a lot of purely vegan farmers that like will you, actually. Well, yeah, but I know a lot of them that, I'm talking about the ones that say they're vegan and then they go. <laughs> And they, they eat these highly processed foods that try to taste like a hot dog and it's not a hot dog. Yeah, <laughs> these sure, are the ones sure. I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, but, um, and I guess my point was, is that here at Rodale, since we're a research farm, we have to be cognizant that there are, you know, animal, organic animal husbandry businesses all over the country. So it's really our mission to kind of like come up with you know the research and the data to help them so we're not going to really di um, differentiate between you know a certified vegan farm versus like somebody who's just raises cattle or maybe does diversified vegetable and like poultry production or something because you can you can do it to your point in a responsible and ethical way so um basically what what we want to move away from are these concepts of CAFOs. So that's a confined animal feeding operation. So that's where you have, I like to call them like factories. Like, you know, post-World War II, the other thing we did really well was like mechanize everything, right? It was like the birth of the Model T, you know, the assembly line into like, you know, into like current times, you know? Yeah. So like, um, so, you know, when you treat animals like in a factory environment, that is problematic, you know, because a, a few things happen. One, they never go outside. So, you know, these, it's their instinct, like we have hogs here at Rodale Institute, it's their instinct to get out into the pasture, to use their nose, to root around, to make a wallow, to lay, because they can't sweat, you know, so they have to make like a kind of like a hippopotamus they have to make like a mud bath to like cool down in the summertime and stuff so like by raising them in a concrete paddock in like a barn where they're just they have no movement is is you know cruel basically so yet they can't be let hogs be hogs let them run through the pasture you know let them eat you know we we actually plant certain plants for them you know like different brassicas and tillage radish and stuff partly because it kind of works like cover crops and getting organic matter into the soil, but then it's fun things for them to dig up and eat. 
and it lowers it also lowers our like you know feed that we have like the organic feed we have to supplement them with because they're getting some food from the pasture and then to your point too you know they're you know basically their feces you know adds fertilizer to that soil and i just want to go ahead and say we're not growing vegetables for like consumption you know with you know like close to like when the animals were in the pasture because there's, you know, you being a chef, there's food safety things with like animal yeah. disease and stuff. There's so e. coli. you know what yeah, that is. <laughs> exactly. So this is all very planned and like you want to get the animals in there when all the vegetables are gone and nothing's going in there the rest of the year or way before the vegetables go in there. And there's, you know, we have to follow regulations basically to, to ensure food safety for people. How long do you have to wait? Like before I think, they poop? I think it's 120 days for for items that possibly touch the ground. So things that grow low in tomatoes and fruits and things, because they theoretically could touch the ground. And I think it's 90 days for grain production because corn and wheat grow so high, you know, like the, it's like way off the ground. So you have a little more, you have a shorter time period for that. Um, but yeah, so basically what you could do is just, you know, all of our, um, we have these basic movable systems. So chicken tractors, we call them. So they're in electric fencing where there's plenty of space for every chicken to have like its own kind of like, you know, roam around in space. Uh, they could scratch for bugs, you know, be chickens. And then once they um, utilize all that organic material, you, know, you could see the pasture kind of get quote unquote beat up, you know, it's like time to move them and you move them to the next section and they do that. And then that whole time they're leaving their feces and like, you know, nitrogen and all the stuff you get from their they're fertilized, you know, to fertilize the soil. Um, so, you you know, we do the same thing with the hog facility. It's kind of designed like a clock. So you can open certain doors and let them out into like, let's say paddock one. When they beat that up, you close the door, you open the next door, they go out to paddock two, beat that up. And then, you know, by the time they get around to paddock one again. It's time to. It's recovered. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah, that's like basically what we do. And we, we mainly raise, uh, we have laying chickens here, so we do some egg production. Um, we do uh, some broilers, so we do have some chickens for meat production, and then we have a, a hog production as well. And we are looking for forward to um, some of the feedback we got from our farm member training program is people wanted more cattle experience. So that's something we're working on for the future for, um, you know, a pasture grass fed, uh, you know, beef production as well. Really cool. Mm -hmm. um, oh, so you mentioned like, you know, Thai basil and stuff like that. What are uh, some of the, I'm assuming you get to experiment with like cool varieties because you're not, you know, if you're yeah. experimenting, that's what you yeah, do. Totally. <laughs> what are the coolest uh, vegetables that you've, you've grown so far that are like, oh, this is cool. Interesting. Um, I don't. It's a, such a hard decision, but one thing we do as a research facility is we, we do do some like um, seed trials for some of the organic seed companies. So they'll be like, hey, will you try this leak out for us? We think we figured out how um, it's more resistant. I'm just making this up. So, you know, please don't quote me, but like we, we have this new, uh, you know, uh, leak that is really, uh, you know, it really pest resistant or really like 
you know, mold resistant or something. So then, um, you know, we'll grow it for them. And then, you know, we'll like, you know, take some notes for them and they'll actually come back at the end of the season and I'll save portions of the harvest. So they'll, they'll just give me a parameter like, hey, I need 20 pounds a leak so we can like examine them. And then the seed rep will come here and, you know, they do their little tests. They cut them open. They say like this, they want to see the field where it was grown. They'll interview Dan, our farm manager, and be like, how was this compared to like, you know, the standard leaks, um, you know, that you've been growing in the past. And like Dan will give his honest feedback, like, hey, this was really good. Or, hey, it was really good germination. But when it got into the field, I saw some problems. And then, um, and that's how these new plants and seeds get into the market is like these testing, like kind of, um, um, yeah, these little like science experiments, like you said. Are they, well, because are they, they're breeding these kind of through like a, not natural selection, but, oh, this is a strong one. This is a strong one. Let's cross pollinate them. Yeah, basically. So basically, yeah. This is something that um, does confuse a lot of consumers, Grace is um, people ask me why some of their food at a grocery store is labeled USDA certified organic and non-GMO. Uh, because the truth is, is you cannot use GMO seed in organic agriculture production. That can only be used in conventional production. So the way they develop organic plants is um, it has to be through sexual reproduction. So to your point, they might take one leak, you know, that has been proven to be pretty resistant to this mold and this like, quote unquote, made it with like an, like a, another one to get a new like version. So whenever you see stuff like that in organic, it's purely, it's through sexual, you know, reproduction. It's not through GMO manipulation. No CRISPR used. <laughs> no CRISPR used, exactly. No gene editing, none of that. It's, you know, you're just, cross-pollinating plants, basically. Sorry, that's the word I was looking for. Um, so, uh, but, and I think to that point, I think why people do that is it's a marketing technique. Oh like yeah. Non-GMO is so just such a hot word that, but it, truthfully it is redundant. So if you see a product like carrots that have USDA organic and non-GMO, that's a redundant label. Like you just needed the organic label to express that it was non-GMO. One time, uh... <laughs> my mom like she loves bottled water like I can't yeah. get her to give it up but uh <laughs> she bought this bottled water a couple months ago and it said uh gluten-free on it yes. <laughs> I should say it should say zero calorie too yeah, yeah. I know yeah it's um and I'm not saying that labels are bad because you know how we were talking about before educating the consumer is um but I mean, it was just something that comes up at the farmer's markets. I definitely had some oh, yeah. like really expressed to me vehemently that they were like, I think there's GMOs and organic. And I'm like, no, no, let's look up the policy. I'll look it up online, like the regulation. Here it is. You cannot use GMO in any form of, you know, organic, certified organic agriculture, you know. Well, I think too, the, um, you know, the truth in labeling when it comes to food has been there hasn't been any really in the grocery store for the longest time. So uh, I think people are really suspicious. The ones that are actually concerned about like what their food is, you know, that actually read the labels are very suspicious about, you know, what they're putting in their body. 
And you are seeing that behavior spill over into conventional food production too, because I just saw a commercial with Purdue chicken the other day where it was like, did you know that conventional poultry production, they can feed the animal, they can feed them animal byproducts. So like, you know, there was like, you know, like, so Purdue's talking point was as like, our chickens only eat, even though it's conventional feed, yeah. soybeans, corn, you know, we're not feeding them chicken blood or bone, like, you know, bones or anything. Cause, but to, to the truth of labeling, nobody knew that was going into their, you know, that, you know, they were feeding animal byproducts to animals. Yeah. So you're, starting, which is a good thing, I think that like, you know, Oh, this truth is coming out even even on the conventional side of the equation, I guess is my point. Uh, point. Well, I think, you know, because you guys are becoming a real option mm -hmm. that they're kind of being forced to compete, whereas before they could kind of do whatever they wanted and they, you know, they own the system. And especially when you, you know, over COVID, when the system broke down and they're, you know, they're see them dumping out all this milk and nobody can get anything and everyone's I think that that kind of oh you know gave you a little like peak of oh what well this is how our food system works what, what can we do about it there's a problem you know because nobody was thinking about it before you know oh yeah I and mean, I know you spoke about you know uh you know the, the experience like restaurant workers got like laid off and stuff during COVID and just uh, just to touch on a, a little bit from my experience as the, the, the food access program manager here at Rodale, um, they were, I, we had to adapt like other businesses because, you know, we had to do like virtual orders and things like that for our plant sale. And um, just, I did these pork packages last year that were just like flying off the shelf. Like it was like almost overwhelming how because the, it was right when the grocery stores and the supply chains were collapsing and they were threatening to shut down the meat processors because the COVID was rampant in the meat processing facilities. So to your point, it did kind of educate the consumer to like, how about I look at my own region to like source food? And, and um, because one of the things that like Big Ag has always told us is like, we do it this way because the supply chain is stable, right? Yeah. And then the pandemic came in and it was like, wow, it's not as stable as we thought it was. And yeah. uh, I know the Lehigh Valley farms here, CSAs were actually on a, I don't, not to skip ahead, as community supported agricultural programs. That's where farms, you can buy a farm share in like a farm and like get your groceries all through this, your seasonal groceries through them whole, all season. So you're kind of like supporting a local farm through that method. Um, they that was going down. That was trending down nationally. The popularity of them. Oh, really? Once the pandemic hit, every they, everybody sold out again. So it kind of reinvigorated the consumer to be like, "Why didn't we take advantage of this great system? I can just drive, you know, down the road, sign up for a CSA from a local organic farm, and get organic produce straight from an organic farmer." And if you know, I don't have to fight people at a grocery store to like, if there's like some kind of supply chain problem. Um, well, that's the one thing I was actually, I was thinking about that during the pandemic because when I lived in Philadelphia, I had a CSA from Lansdale Farms mm -hmm. and um, it was, it was great. Like, cause I would get like, you know, I would get weird shit and I'd love to like figure out, oh, what can I make with this? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, um, you know, the one of the, 
probably the only reason I could do that living in a city, I didn't have a car. So I could only really do that because they came, they had the farmer's market right there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so the one thing I was thinking, I was like, there's gotta be a way to like, be able to like Postmates this, you know what I mean? <laughs> there's gotta be a way, like a third party delivery service because- totally. uh, yeah, like a DoorDash for CSAs or something. Yeah, like yeah. that would be amazing because I think one of the like, reasons why it wasn't so popular is you had to go all the way to the farm to get it, mm-hmm. you know? And um, yeah, like there's, I think the closest farm here is like an hour drive or so, you know? And, uh, you know, Grace, that's actually an awesome point because um, through all my, I, I do survey analysis for these food access programs. And um, and I don't mean to, I don't think I did this exact study and I can't remember where I, I got the data from, so I'm so sorry. But one thing high income farmer's market shoppers and low income farmer's, mar- farmers, markets, uh, farmers market shoppers agreed on was is that um, they don't participate in local agriculture more often because of convenience. So I do think the pandemic helped educate farmers, local, organic, you know, you farmers that like we do have to adapt to this convenience thing. Well, the thing is too, like before was understandable. Like back when I was in college, I don't even think Facebook on Instagram yet. So, (laughs) but but now (laughs) like we have the technology, you know? Yeah. So. And I, I have seen some, um, I, I have like a CSA Facebook group, like CSA managers where we can like, you know, chat up problems and, you know, everything from how do you market your products to, you know. Uh, I think the thing too was that the thing I was thinking about, say you had this app that was for farmer CSA, people would mm-hmm. have to know what that was. But if you were able to integrate into one of the bigger apps and it just showed up as an option, you would be in front of the eyeballs of people who never even knew that existed. Yeah. Like Instacart or, I mean, you know, like Amazon has like the Whole Foods stuff, but it's just Whole Foods, you Mm -hmm. know? So, but like Instacart, you can do, you know, Publix or Giant or all the different grocery stores. So once you're competing at the grocery store level, people are just like, oh, I'll click on that. It's organic. Yeah. I don't, they're coming to me. I don't care. You know? <laughs> yeah. And um, one thing that I, there were a couple um, entrepreneurship opportunities in the Lehigh Valley that opened up because of the pandemic. So I, there's two companies I know now that they're not farms. They just aggregate organic, local organic produce and do, do the deliveries. That's cool. So there, I do like your idea about like marrying the apps, but there's like a couple ways to look, couple models to look at it. Like if they're buying from the farms and the farms just need to go to one place and be like, yeah, dude, you want 300 pounds of carrots, organic carrots, here you go. Like done. And then they were kind of taking the onus of like, no, we have the delivery trucks. We have that, the, you know, the software to like map out the delivery routes and we take the orders. Because it can be overwhelming for, especially if you're a startup farm, to be like, now I gotta be like, you know, a DoorDash too. Like it's so growing and processing and marketing the food yourself. That's true. Um, 
That's I, a whole other thing. Entrepreneurial opportunities, I guess, is my point for other third parties to come in to be like, oh, we got this. Like, we can do this tech side real easy. We just need access to food. One great thing that our consulting department did that I would always get questions over the years and I didn't know how to help people is they're like, how can I find an organic farm? Or I get buyers from Philly and New York, organic buyers that are like, I need a hundred pounds of organic jalapenos because they're just, they're moving food like stocks. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I can't find it. So uh, if you go to the Rodale website, www.rodaleinstitute.org in our consulting tab, if you scroll way to the bottom, there's an organic business like finder. So now when these buyers email me, I just send them that link. It's like a yeah, I'm just maps like, of organic farming. Yep. And it's like, here are the farms, man. Like it's your, you're the sale, you know, your job is to source this food. Like I'm already busy. I can't do that for you, but here's the link, you know, type in your zip code where you want it from all the organic farms will pop up and just get on the phone and start cold calling them. But it's, it seems simple, but it's so much more. And we want to support organic farmers as Rodale. But like I said, I don't have enough minutes in the day to, you know, call up all these organic farms and be like, hey, I know somebody who wants to buy a hundred pound of jalapenos. Can you help them? Yeah. This, this, like, this, like, um, map tool they did was like so helpful. And the, the buyers were receptive to it. They were like, great. You know, they just sent an email back, great. You know, like, we'll get this to our team. And, um, so that's one way I've been linking, you know, regional organic farms with these, like, these buyers. Because that's one thing that I've noticed over the years, there's a disconnect. Like the producers can't find buyers and the buyers can't find producers. So we really need to like find, like the food's out there, I think. We just really need to find a way to connect them directly. And I think you're right, it is through technology and apps and, and things like that. And there's a lot of, I mean, Philly, like, because I grew up in New Jersey, like right, I mean, you know, by Patterson, so very mm -hmm. close to New York City. Yeah. So even, you know, as a kid going to New York City and everything like that, compared to when I went to school in Philly, like the the movement uh, for organic, I felt like was way stronger in Philly than it was in New York even. And you it was- pockets, yeah. Yeah, it was just like, like I, I was in the, I did, I was in the slow food chapter at my yeah. school and I was, you know, that's, was one of my big introductions, but pretty much every place I worked at, I mean, high, like high-end places, they were all trying to, you know, source local, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that is very, very cool. Um, and I also think that maybe even, maybe even engaging corporations, like I worked for a corporate restaurant chain for many years, like and, you know, I pitched an idea one time. I was like, how about we have one salad on the menu? That's like, I know you guys like don't want to collapse your supply chain. I know that's a big ask to convert your entire, um, you know, menu to local. I think you can do it. I'm not trying to minimize it, but I understand how maybe out of the gate, you wouldn't want to do that. But why can't we do like, maybe like the salad section or something like yeah. simple and then see how it's received and see how it goes and then maybe expand from there. Um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of opportunities like that. And, you know, one thing I've learned from the demographic data from the food access programs is even the low income, 
like millennial and Z generation are very supportive of this. Like they- I mean, they're supportive of everything. <laughs> but like, like voting with your dollar, they get it. Yeah, they get it. And they, they are like, you know, I want to buy ethically produced vegetables and meat products. Like, you know, they're, uh, there is a generation gap, I think, too, but partly. Yeah. Well, it. also, there's not the there's not that many young. I feel like the, it's kind of like the renaissance of farming, almost, mm -hmm. where it, maybe there's a lot more young people coming in and now. But when when I was in high school, like that, it wasn't even an option. You know what I mean? Yeah, and um. Just like we're losing topsoil, we're losing farmers. The yeah. average farmers in their mid sixties in America, the average farmer landowners closer to eighty. So some of those like eighty year old individuals are basically like kind of probably leasing the, out their land to like farmers in their sixties. So um, we have been seeing more, um, you know, younger generations try wanting to get into this field and we need them to be honest and that's one of the major components of our, our veteran and or you know rift farmer training program here is is that you know if we make farmers they will go out and be great ambassadors and land stewards you know they're going to start certified organic businesses because another statistic that's a mind of blowing grace is is that only 1% of, you know, organic, of U.S. soil is certified organic. But yet the market is starting to increase into like the mid-teens for like, you know, who's purchasing organic. So we've already have a gap where there's 1% of the land certified organic, but it's commanding, let's say, 14 to 18% of the marketplace. So as that goes, you know, gets into the 20s, 30s, 40%, like that, we definitely need to increase certified organic land in, in this country specifically. Well, then it also seems like another issue would be, um, you know, these young farmers coming up like me, like we're, you know, we're clobbered in student loan debt. Like we don't have enough money to purchase land either. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Is there some sort of program that once you would get out that you partner up with one of these old farmers or something? Yeah, so um, basically we do, and this is very regional, um, we have, uh, I think a good step for a, a, a farmer that's struggling with debt is when they get out of, let's say our training program, which is like nine to 10 months that we have some relationships with regional, what we call incubator farms that are nonprofit. So they will basically lease you acreage at a really, really reasonable rate, like almost next to nothing. You can start your business there with the hopes that once you get some capital flowing, you know, then maybe you can take the transition to be like, wow, this, you know, this incubator farm got, you know, got me started. You know, I was there for two or three seasons. I did this 200 member CSA. I have some good cash flow now. You know, maybe now I'll look out at like maybe, you know, purchasing a small plot of land or leasing a small plot of land from, uh, there's also some other models that are, 
I mean, they, every model has their problem, right? Their plus and the minuses, but I, I've seen some like co-ops. So where there'll okay. be a bunch of young farmers that'll go in like on like 20 acres together and they all, they all get four acres, you know, and they all try to grow different things, you know, not, not to encourage monocropping, but just to kind of like, you know, diversify the, the landscape there. Um, well, there's a lot of, I guess, co-ops co like that um, in urban gardening. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's yeah it's a common it's a common model, but yeah, but for more like in a rural setting, you know, where you, yeah. you bigger acreage and stuff like that, and then you can pull resources and maybe you can, hey, I hate growing carrots. You like growing carrots, you know, and then you maybe I can buy carrots from you for like you know what I mean, and you can start like kind of bartering and trading products back and forth. Like maybe you can even rotate crops like oh well I'm gonna I'll grow my carrots over here now and then let the, you know the next season I'll move to where you were and you know, yeah yeah I've seen every idea like that yeah like any any solution you can come up with for that um but yeah so there's definitely you know we're having our farmers are older so we need farmers and we need organic farmers specifically because one percent is you know nowhere near I, I foresee the demands going up every year or like organic. Um, and you mentioned, I know you, you know, we're getting a little short on time, but um, you mentioned the, uh, I forgot what it's called, the grass flattener, the- uh, The roller crimper. The roller crimper. Yep. Um, I think another common misconception is that organic farming is like a bunch of people picking every fruit by hand. And like some people would think, oh, you know, that would cost a lot because you got to pay people to go pick the fruit, but you guys are using modern technology to organic farm. Yeah, and I've seen all kinds of stuff like, you know, I, I follow YouTube things too. There's definitely, uh, I, don't, I saw one, um, I've seen like little robots that can target weeds, you know, so they'll actually like roll down your like, you know, roll your, your vegetable row, row and like, you know, can identify a weed as opposed to an eggplant, you know, and just zap it out, you know, with a, whatever like hand tool it has or stuff. That makes, that makes sense. I got, yeah, but, I got but, that but, app on my phone. Yeah. And I'm like, did I plant this or is this a weed? <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've even seen like RFI chips that will tell you like the, the nutrient density of the eggplant is the highest right now. Like you need to harvest it within 24 hours and stuff. So I do think there is a role for technology in organic farming in the future, but um, and just to back it up a little bit, Grace, because you have a you have a lot of restaurant experience. One thing that does trouble me, as like me, I'm a food production specialist, is my title for Rodale Institute, and being a restaurant worker my whole life, is America does not value anybody who produces food at any part of the supply chain from the migrant workers in California that get paid 10 cents a pint of berries they pick, you know, to the kitchen staff, you know, that's overworked, no vacation, you can't take off because, you know, you know, you lose money if you take off, you don't have health insurance, like when are we going to start valuing, um, you know, our entire food production network? from growers, from hard field harvesters to the busboy or the dishwasher. Like everybody's taken advantage of the servers, the bar, you know, like, 
And it's just, it's, it, you know, it's something that does bother me like over the years that I've been thinking about it. I'm like, I never put those two and two things together. I always felt the pressure on the restaurant side of like, why don't I have health insurance? Why don't I, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. And then when I came to farming and I was like, oh my God, they have the same exact problems that the yeah. workers do. And it's, and what's the common denominator? It's food production. It's just one population's growing the food and one population's preparing the food. You know what I mean? But it's still like food production, like in the grand sense of the concept. I think one of the things too was um, there's always such a sense of camaraderie in the kitchen when you work and you didn't want to, there's no one to replace you usually. There's like one other guy that you, that's how you get your two days off or something. You know what Mm. I mean? So they, you know, they, they're on such tight margins, so to speak, but then, you know, all the money stays at the top if there is money. Yeah. And it's, and that, and that goes to your point about why conventional was so cheap too, because if you have like migrant workers, you know, harvesting, you know, pints of blueberries for 10 cents a pint, like that's not a sustainable model. Like, you know, like people deserve like a living wage. Yeah. And another component of the ROC, that regenerative organic agriculture certification that I, I kind of butchered a little bit before, I'm sorry. But um, it's definitely like about the tilling and the food production, you know, minimizing tillage events. But it also wants to start working in like, you know, workers' rights, like farm workers' rights, like exposure to pesticides cause like Hodgkin's disease. We know glyphosate's a carcinogen. We know that now. That's scientific proof. That's not some kind of organic, like white, you know, like. Yeah, that's not some hippy dippy shit. <laughs> yeah, like. That is, that is a fact. So, um, you know, and then also, you know, yeah, so we, we just got to like get this whole, and animal rights too. Well, I think the, a huge thing I remember um, when I was working in the restaurants, there was a group that was trying to organize restaurant workers to unionize mm-hmm. and they got, they got squashed. Like, and if you even... Like, if you even just, like, mentioned that, like, oh, I heard this was going on, he knew about it, like, they're watching you like a hawk, because they didn't, you know, if they unionize, then you get better pay, get her, you know, health insurance, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, yeah. and um, that's one of the reasons why I switched careers to, I was, became a flight attendant, uh, so I could see the world and eat everything, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but one of the things was because I knew I was never going to make enough money to not, not just open my own restaurant, which was my dream, right? but have a family and keep a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. Like those were things that were never going to happen if yeah. I stayed where I was. So, and then you have like almost everyone, like I was going to school and working. Um, and then I was, you know, just working, but pretty much everyone that I worked with, if they had a kid, they had two jobs. Yep. You know, they had, and even the people that didn't have kids, uh, a lot of them immigrants and they were sending money back to Guatemala or whatever. Right. You know, two jobs. They would come to the the production in the morning and Mm -hmm. sometimes they worked at, they wouldn't work at the same restaurant because then they were violating some of the OSHA stuff. 
Sure. But then they would go to a different restaurant in the same network of restaurants mm -hmm. and they'd work the line at the other restaurant. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, it's not, it, there's a difference between surviving and, and thriving and living, you know? Mm -hmm. Are you living to work or are you working to live? Exactly. And to your point, I don't mind working two jobs if that's somebody's personal choice. Yeah. To do that, you should be like really well off. Yeah. You, you should be you should be rich. Jobs to pay rent. Exactly. Like if, if you're working 80 hours a week, you're rich. Yeah, like that exactly. should be it. Exactly. If you're working 80 hours, you know what? I want to work 80 hours a week. I don't really need to go out on Saturdays. I don't really need, you know what I mean? That's in exactly. place. But you should be well paid compensated for yeah. like you should be able to work 40 hours and not and like no my bills are paid you yeah know? and like when i was a probably when i was a kid but maybe before that like people were talking about people that were you know like a general manager of like a staples like they could mm -hmm. buy a house you know what i mean <laughs> like <laughs> like that that would that doesn't happen anymore you know <laughs> yeah yeah, so that was, I, I'm glad we got to touch on that a little bit because I, I was excited when I heard that, you, you know, you had that, that the restaurant background because um, it comes up sometimes in my my role here as, as Rodale Institute, but I don't think I get to talk about it that much. And um, also to the concept of that comes up is can organic feed the world? And, you know, the FST, the one, the grain trial that you spoke about before does have, you know, 40 years of data showing that organic outperforms conventional in times of drought and, um, you know, that the yields are very comparable to like conventional agro, you know, grain production. But um, w one thing that goes, gets slipped under the table is that I like to back it up and go, whoa, 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 whoa. We waste 40% of all food, whether it's conventional yes. or organic. And that was one of the things when so you we brought up the restaurant. Yeah. These restaurants, they throw even the food, you know, the food that's half eaten, that shit can get composted. Yep. And it's not even, you know, here, I was thinking about that in this apartment complex I'm in. So much food waste in the mm -hmm. dumpster. And it's like, we have recycling bins. Why don't we just have a compost bin? Like, why isn't that? kind of mandatory you know because you dump it in the food in yeah. the garbage dump and it's you know it's mixed with all that other shit and it's like <laughs> I not know. Us. it's a wasted and then, resource and then to your point i think i don't remember the exact statistic but i think like a quarter of all landfills is at, is actually full of like compostable material so whether yeah. it's cardboard or food waste now it's anaerobically decomposing, releasing methane into the atmosphere, another problematic gas, instead of like, you could imagine if all like 25% of all landfills were like less because, you know, you know, it got composted instead of buried with like stuff, you know, that you can't really like styrofoam and stuff that has to kind of go to a landfill. But like, um, that's another topic, but so what we grow like 40, we grow enough food to feed 14 billion people currently. Like, where are we at? around seven and a half billion? Like, I think I, I haven't looked at that. Yeah, and then there's still people starving. Yeah, exactly. 
but we're, yeah. we're growing double the amount of food we need now. So I just don't really agree with that talking point in general, like can organic feed the world when we're wasting? Well, I also don't think conventional can feed the world for much longer. That's the exactly. real thing. And also um, speaking of the top topsoil, like eroding away in uh, I think in 60 years, mm -hmm. then are we headed towards another dust bowl? Basically, and that's actually a really awesome analogy, Grace, that a lot of people don't know that um, the Dust Bowl was caused by tillage events. Like yeah. everybody thinks it was this weather pattern that came in and it was weather kind of um, like weather driven, but yeah. it was the over tilling that caused the Dust Bowl because what happened was is the farmers laid their seed um, no rain came. So that's the weather stimulus. That seed went dead. So they were like, they heard a rumor that rain was coming, you know, so they went and bought more seed, retilled, didn't rain, you know, heard the rumor, prayed weather was coming, heard a rumor that rain was coming, retilled, laid the seed again. And that over tilling is what actually caused the dust bowl. So it was partly weather related, but I think people kind of like comb over that. Like, oh yeah, yeah, drought. No, 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 actually. Actually, but also I don't think they understood, like, you know, when they were reporting on it, they probably didn't even understand that tilling was bad. You know what I mean? Like that, that you were fucking up the soil. Exactly. Cause that was in like the thirties. Yeah, but I believe so, yep. Um. One, one more question. <laughs> I have some fun, Grace. So oh, okay. I have, to, I have to get going in a little bit. You got it. You got it. I just didn't want to make it feel like I was rushing you out. Oh, okay. Um, the oh, seed saving. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have a program with that? or? Um, we really don't. Uh, the only example we really do for that is our garlic production. Okay. Um, that is a very interesting thing. And uh, it it would need like a, I think we would need like a whole nother department kind of to like do that. That's, that's it's it'd be like in a kitchen, you know, it, it's like the prep area. Like you would need like a whole nother, like I don't have time to do that. Like I'm the oh, yeah. bit of chef, you know, I, I, I need help like on the prep side, but we definitely do it for our garlic seed. So our garlic seed has been rotated. Like I think Dan's been doing it for five or six years now. And I think he said at year 10, we get to name the garlic. Like, like because like it's been, we, we've reseeded the same, you know, like cycle for 10 years, then you get to name the garlic. That's pretty cool. That is something that we, and it's a very common question. So I, I appreciate it. Um, but you could just imagine like how laborious like harvesting kale or lettuce seed is. If you ever seen how small they are. Yeah, like they fit on like the edge of it's like an eyelash, you know what I mean? Like it's like fits on the your index finger. Like, uh, but do you guys? Where do you you save your seeds for your your garlic, but not? Yeah, that's pretty much. So where it. Do you, are you do you participate in like a swap with other people, or you just buy them, or you just buy them for from organic seed like producer? We have those relationships to do the seed trials for them and stuff. So. Do you have a link of like all the organic seed companies you can buy seeds from? Yeah, um, we buy from Harris Seed Organic. 
Paris Seeds has an organic line. Um, Johnny's has an organic, um, I think they are actually all organic. And um, High Mowing's a good company. High Mowing? The top three that jump off into my head. I just, because, uh, you know, YouTube, I was watching this other one that uh, is Baker's Creek out in, uh, I want to say, I Michigan or Missouri or something. I haven't heard of that one. Um, they have some. Those are the three ones we deal with, Harris, yeah. uh, Johnny's, and High Mowing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check those out because, I mean, and, I oh, love this one because they have, like, really, like, kind of, like, strange things, you know, like... Yeah. I really, I'm going to buy um, poppy seeds so I can like, you know, harvest my own poppy seeds and make yeah. a, like the breads good. and bagels and stuff. Um, oh, Bejo is another great one too. Sorry, yeah. I don't want to exclude them. Bejo, we do some seed trials for them as well. All right, cool. Can you, uh, like after the podcast, could you like write them down for me? Yeah, I'll, I'll just email them to you. Sweet. And then... Um, Oh, one thing I wanted to touch on, I know you're running out of time, is, you know, the organic agriculture, as far as like the history of Rodale Institute, like I said, was very motivated by that 1945, like conversion to like chemical production. He said he was a, the guy who started was a manufacturer. Um, yeah, that's from what did he manufacture? I think it was lights and like oh. light bulbs and light switches and stuff. And it, he was from Manhattan. And then um, um, when he got out here, he started the publication company. So like organic gardening and farming and um, prevention you might've heard of. And then he, it grew into like men's health and women's health. They actually, bicycling was one of their titles. Um, so yeah, that was um, basically kind of like the publication became, was the for-profit side like of his uh, uh, business out here. but. I just wanted to acknowledge like the indigenous uh, the indigenous cultures because like you know we always grew organic, so I think that gets like you know brushed over sometimes. Like until 1945, you know, like people of color and indigenous communities all over the world grew organically. So I just don't want to make it feel like yeah we invented this stuff you know oh no it's got, it's going back to the old ways yeah I mean, there's this history of, of culture on every continent that produced food in an organic manner and when we got to 1940 oh, yeah there was no such thing it wasn't yeah. called organic it was just called farming <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly so that's at 1945 you see that big switch so a lot of our work had to do with like codifying you know how did you um... the, the, the label, you know. Yeah. How like, did you guys get the uh, the knowledge base? Like, did you reach out to other like indigenous communities? Because I know like the Native Americans, they're the OGs over here. Like, right. yeah, yeah. And there's you, like, like, you know, the examples from like them the, or the three sisters and stuff. And um, I have been um, there's just been. Uh, a lot of nonprofits popping up that I, you know, I follow on social media that are, you know, either a BIPOC farm or um, we've had a pre one of our veteran interns in previous years uh, went back to start a an indigenous farm in like I, I can't remember I think she was from Michigan so it was a Native American kind of like uh, you know food hub she started for the, like her her community out there 
So I just, yeah, I just think that's a really important thing to bring up is that, you know, our work was really based on post 1945 and kind of re-educating, but like th this indigenous knowledge and wisdom was like here way before, you know, that conversion mm -hmm. to like organic. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, realize, yeah, um, I mean, we're talking about food, but you know, the, um, a lot of these things you grow, you don't just use them for food. So uh, I was just thinking about that because the uh, sunflowers I'm growing, they're a Native American sunflower, mm -hmm. uh, the black dye opie, and you can take the dye and they would dye, you know, like clothes and stuff and textiles. So I'm going to try it. I'm going to attempt to do it. We'll see how it comes out. <laughs> but, Very but, cool. Yeah. but So there's so many cool things and like, um, I, I didn't get to watch it uh, yet, but I saw you guys have a um, a video about um, hemp as a weed controller. Yeah. So I think, I mean, we, with the prohibition of of cannabis, mm -hmm. um, we probably lost a lot of um, knowledge there. You know, like yeah. of what that you can because you can use that for a lot of things. When I was in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. um it was a high-end car I don't, I don't want to mess it up i think it was but it was a very high-end sports car mm -hmm. that they actually would make the um the insides like the siding the structure of the car mm -hmm. out of a composite made from hemp because it was so strong but it was yeah. super light so the car could go super fast i think that um for me personally speaking the most exciting thing about hemp production is on like the um the textile and manufacturing side like uh, there's a french company that makes like a hemp concrete basically that's just lime i you know lye water and hemp sorry like hemp husk water and three ingredients and it makes something that was as solid as as a cinder block yeah, I think I saw that. And, fire, and it's fire retardant too, because I saw the guy hold a blowtorch to it for like 20 minutes and it was like black, it got scorched, but it never like caught fire. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you would, if you held it to like, you know, paper or something, you know, like it would combust. That's amazing. Yeah, so, um, but like, yeah, we're looking at hemp as a cover crop, hemp, uh, you know, for industrial applications like that. And, um, you know, hemp as a weed suppressant as well, you yeah. know. That's cool. Not to mention CBD production, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, CBD production, all that fun stuff. Yeah. People are probably tired of hearing me talk about. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's enough podcasts on that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But mean, it, does have, it does have a place. And, you know, another thing that, you know, there was definitely the anti-cannabis was definitely race-driven, right? Oh, yeah. It was born out of, you know, you know, trying to take that away from like brown people and people of color yeah you know so you know to your point we lost all of that experience and knowledge because you know it got like stereotyped to a certain class of people you know a certain you know ethnicity of people i mean so, <laughs> basically but, uh yeah and also because the paper you know the paper lobbyists wanted to continue oh. to cut down trees but yeah not that's also not good for the planet <laughs> yeah, exactly so but it seems like i think the world's gonna kind of 
hopefully turn to this direction because we kind of have to. Yeah. But uh, especially, you know, the past couple of days, the uh, the gas pipeline got shut down mm-hmm. or hacked. So, you know, that's definitely, I'm sure more people are going to look at for electric cars now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> you got to yeah. adapt. So I think this is going to be, the future is bright, you know? <laughs> I definitely think so too. Yeah. And um, yeah, so we're just really excited to, to have spoken to you, Grace, and I am too. I uh, thank you for helping us get our message out there. And, you know, uh, uh, the future of organic studies, I think, is just to sum it up real fast is, um, you know, our slogan is healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. So we really want to concentrate you know, we have the soil science down and the food production. So we really want to start concentrating on the health of people consuming the food. And, um, you know, that goes to my food access programs and, you know, the pilot veggie prescription program I did with Lehigh Valley Health Network last year here. Um, and um, I just, it was our local, one of our local hospital networks. We did a, we did a mini pilot run of uh, patients were chosen because they had at-risk health behavior, you know, um, whether it was like cholesterol or like low food access, a myriad of problems. Um, and um, they were given free health screenings by uh, PhD students. And then they came, they got a veggie prescription, quote unquote, that they could bring to the, the mobile markets that I set up and I would trade them in for like produce. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was like, that's my, that's been my passion the last couple of years. I love all of our food access programs, but this was one I really have been involved with from like the ground floor. So uh, we're looking to partner for, you know, grants in the future and try to expand that study of that pilot project we did. That's, that's really amazing. Cause I try to tell people too, like healthy food doesn't have to taste bad, you know? So if you give them a, yeah. You know, and the, the health networks are starting to recognize that if you use food to, to mitigate these health diseases early, you actually save money in the long run on like, you know, the insulin or something that somebody uses when they're diabetic, when they're older, or like invest in people's health, you know, and it'll lower health costs for everybody. And it'll probably open up health healthcare access to everybody because the costs will come down. The unfortunate thing is the way our health system is set up, I don't think they want the costs to come down. I think the healthcare networks are, from the meetings I've had, and I can only speak in my region, they're really passionate about it and they, they, they see it's unsustainable too. They see that, um, I think that's kind of driven more by big pharma, you know, like make a pill we can make money if we get a pill we can make money um but we're starting to realize that food is really the best way to stay healthy um and you know eating a balanced diet and you know eating colors you know like reds and purples and greens and you know you know you're a chef (laughs) 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 but you know maybe uh maybe someone who who's listening hasn't heard it before but uh it's just uh it, you know, it also just, it tastes good. So you want yeah. to, and the, um, so, so many problems can be solved with just diet and exercise. And exactly when you grow your own food, like 
Like I can't wait to buy a house and have a garden. Like that's my, I'm more excited about the garden. I think the, house, the garden and the kitchen and, um, but that's exercise. Like that counts. You know oh I mean? yeah. And there's, uh, there's actual studies. Um, there's a har a famous harvest Harvard study, 20 minutes working in soil get raised. I, I don't want to misquote it, but it significantly raised serotonin levels. And, um, I think during the pandemic, anybody who did have a garden, I bet was probably gardening a lot, like, you know, with the oh, singing yeah. and lot stuff. So it really does, it like, you know, affects your mental health, gardening and farming and working with soil and working with plants in a positive way. I mean, it definitely, I, I mean, I can't really express how much it helped me because, you know, I had like everything just got ripped away from me in like mm -hmm. three days. Like, yeah. I thought, you know, and I was like, shit, like if I didn't have uh, my boyfriend supporting us, like we'd be fucked. But mm -hmm. one of the things was like, I got, I, we, I was having trouble with getting my SNAP benefits and my unemployment to begin mm -hmm. with. And I just went, all right, we got to start growing some food. Yeah. <laughs> like you're talking about food sovereignty. Like yeah. that's exactly where my mind went to. Yeah, and that's how the garden started. That's great. And thank God I didn't actually need to depend on the garden because the first season was not successful. Oh no! <laughs> but, like I tried to grow sweet potatoes in this bag, and uh, you know I had the beautiful vines coming out and everything, and then one day I went to water it, and the vine wasn't attached to anything anymore. Like no. something had just eaten everything underneath and I dug up like, where are the potatoes? The only thing that was left was the skin from the original. Oh <laughs> yeah, something totally ate it. <laughs> did you um? Did you ever try to prepare the sweet potato greens? No, I didn't know you can eat them. I, uh, um, our, one of our previous interns was from Louisiana and uh, one week we were really like kind of short on CSA items. So like sometimes you got to get creative and he's like, well, in Louisiana, we eat the sweet potato greens because our sweet potatoes weren't ready to harvest yet, but you know, they were vined out. And I was like, no. And like, you know, we all Googled it to make sure. And I was like, yeah, there is. They were like, it's highly, you, you, the searches I did, they highly suggest you cook them. Yeah. Like they, they said, they didn't want to use the word toxic, but they said they can upset people's bellies raw. So like you, you gotta wilt them down a little bit. I don't. It breaks down some kind of like chemical or structure. Just in add there. some garlic and it'll be good. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I gave. It was one of the most popular. I got so many emails from our CSA members because we're like, I didn't know you could eat these. Are you sure you can eat these? And I, there, I tried. Well, I, you know, I braised them and they were great. You know, and you know, it made like they're in the morning glory family, so it was kind of like a hearty spinach. You know what I mean? Like a, yeah. But I was like, uh, that's how I felt when I got. Uh, the first time I ever had garlic scapes, I got mm -hmm. them from the Lansdale Market. Yep. The CSA. And I I didn't know what they were like, they didn't tell me what they were. I had yeah. to like figure it out. And I was like, this tastes like garlic. Like <laughs> is it a scallion? Well, like, what is this? And uh, but that's that's my favorite part, is like oh I me can't too. Try and sweet potato greens now. They yeah, please try it. And, um, I love the scapes too, because like you get the garlic flavor, but they're mild, right? Like, you know, like yeah, they're mild and you know, then a raw piece of garlic where you're like, oh, that kind of burns my stomach. A little bit. I love, I mean, I could eat the, I could eat the raw garlic. We do too, but, 
and the, but, uh, the scapes are awesome for salsa verdes because like yeah. you know you can keep it green but get like and that the, um, garlic in there but the best is like slicing them thin and then mm. everyone assumes they're a scallion and then they then you like blow their mind like that's the best <laughs> <laughs> i can see that for sure that's what i was doing but, yeah cool <laughs> that's my favorite part about gardening too is now i wish i knew that i would have ate them uh, you'll try again. yeah i'm gonna try i'll try again but so i think it lose, was yeah next time you if you lose the tubers maybe you can save this <laughs> the leaves you'll be like at least i got the edible leaves <laughs> yeah i was like yeah it definitely i mean other things like grew like the herbs grew i grew yeah. radishes pretty successfully but there's That's people were in uh the other thing is like if it's food sovereignty you're you're trying to grow things that are calorie dense too yep and um but you know so i didn't get any <laughs> <laughs> but i saved i've saved hundreds of dollars i've just in basil alone i've saved oh yeah you know so much money on fresh herbs so it's yeah good. organic fresh herbs are like i've seen to wait i've seen organic basil for 14 to 20 bucks a pound yeah it's a, the most expensive thing to buy and the easiest thing to grow totally yep crazy Mm -hmm. I guess it doesn't transport well, but there's also, there's a lot of vegetables that don't transport well, so mm. you never get to taste them. Like I just grew a uh, ground cherries for the first time. Oh yeah, yeah. And they're amazing. <laughs> like, they totally are, yeah. I um, One of the things we struggle with with our CSA and our mobile market uh, production is like, we do have a giant apple orchard, but and we do musk melons, but we, we don't have a ton of fruit actually. So those, um those ground cherries are something I want to look at because they're solanaceous. So we can kind of probably work them into the, you know, our tomato rotation. And then, um, so solanaceous means they like the sun. Yeah. It's just a group of family. So peppers, tomatoes, and potatoes are solanaceous. So they're basically related. But yeah, it, I don't know potatoes would be related to, to that. It's crazy. Yeah. I guess because plants are classified on how they sexually reproduce. So it's more about like, how they reproduce than um, them like looking like each other. features. Yeah, but um, those are the three big ones: uh, potatoes, peppers, and tomatoes, and tomatillas. And tomatillas, they're good. They're, they're solanaceous. So, but it, you, to your point, yeah, it, the Latin name comes, you know, from it because they love the sun. Like they like it real hot, you know. Yeah, the ground cherries. Unfortunately, I had a, a lot of powdery mildew problems, so. Hmm. They're, they're about done but it kind of it worked out because the uh the fruit is in that husk oh yeah so yeah. the fruit was still good but i think i think the plant i might even just have to get rid of it so it doesn't infect everything else yeah i was just going to suggest you might want to get it out of there in case it spreads but you you did the right thing if you can, as long as you get like when we get our late blight on our tomatoes and our high tunnel we we take the tomatoes we take the tomatoes we you know up until we can and then we just let the blight tell us like it's over, you know, time to get well, Time's up. Yeah, time's up. <laughs> Nature's clock is like, no more tomatoes for you guys this year. <laughs> oh. It's okay. That's my <laughs> yeah. All right, well, on that note. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, I hope, uh, you know, Definitely come on again because I know yeah. uh, 
a couple months, this will be lost to the YouTube abyss where they don't suggest it anymore. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll yeah, uh, just sure. we I'd be happy to current. be on again. Awesome. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Thanks for listening to Chef Grace's Place. Uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment, especially if you have any questions for Jesse. Uh, make sure he gets them. And um, don't forget to go check out the Rodale Institute. Like, it's amazing. So why wouldn't you? <laughs> um, I'll see you guys next time.